this is Monica Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today I'm speaking to Emily Rhodes of Emily's Walking Book Club. Emily is an experienced bookseller and has written features and reviews for the Financial Times, The Guardian, The Spectator and The Times Literary Supplement. Started by Emily in 2012, the book club has monthly meetings where she takes other reading enthusiasts on a walk and talk across the beautiful landscape of Hampstead Heath. Emily Rhodes, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thanks so much. Lovely to be here, Georgina. I think the last time we, we spoke, you were a bookseller. You were at, <laughs> uh, you were at Daunt. Yes, exactly. Just around the corner from here. So tell me about your evolution of your career from, from, <laughs> from that point. Oh, I love thinking about it like that. Well, I loved being a bookseller. Um, what I loved most about it was the opportunity to create a feeling of community based around books. I love books and I think that reading is such a powerful experience, but it's also a kind of intensely solitary one. I think, you know, when you put your nose in the book, you're in that world. But what I loved about book selling to begin with and then increasingly in the book club is the way that it sort of explodes that solitary experience into conversations and connections and collaborations. It harnesses the power of a good book and turns it into something even bigger and and a means of bringing people together. I mean, book selling can absolutely change people's lives, can't it? I mean, if somebody comes in not really knowing what they're after, you can give them a book that will absolutely change their course. Yeah, and I mean, I I remember feeling it was almost almost my response Responsibility that, you know, no one could leave the bookshop without me having found a book that would be right for them. So I began Emily's Walking Book Club when I was working at Daunt. For a little while, I was looking after the, the shop just next to Hampstead Heath. And I love Hampstead Heath. I've always lived in London. I've always loved walking on the Heath. And I noticed that many of our customers also love the Heath. And I just had this thought that maybe somehow we could combine the experience of a bookshop and good books with the Heath. And I thought, oh, maybe maybe we could sort of bring the books onto the Heath, maybe we could talk about the books on the Heath. And somehow Emily's Walking Book Club began. So we have these great conversations about a book, but they're really enhanced by the landscape. So we will sort of set off talking about a particular thing and then stop at, say, the mixed bathing ponds or, um, you know, have another stop at the top of Parliament Hill. And so you really feel... The landscape is bringing something to the book and something about walking together with people just makes the conversation flow so easily. The ideas flow because you're all sort of moving and flowing and you're alongside people rather than, you know, kind of confronting them over a table. And I think what's particularly good, I mean, I think all book clubs are great, but I think what's particularly good about this one is that loads of conversations can happen at once. So when we walk on the heath... There are often, you know, 40 or 50 people there. <laughs> so, so obviously we can't kind of walk in a giant sort of huddle across the heath. So we have huddling moments, you know, at these points like by the ponds or on the Avenue of Limes, wherever it is. But I set people off on, you know, a discussion point or ask them a question. And we will naturally split into smaller groups of, you know, twos, threes, fours, fives. And you sort of all chat away at once. So it means that no one person can dominate. That even shyer people who might not feel brave enough to sort of talk before a whole big group 
are really nurtured and able to have these easy conversations. And you also mix around a bit. So if you do find someone that you're literally allergic to, <laughs> you can just at the next at the next stop sort of shuffle away from them. And it's great. And it's, it's led to such deep connections because, you know, walking is a great way to get to know people. But I think the books, they're like a sort of secret weapon into talking about really naughty, thorny subjects. For instance, our December book, A Touch of Mistletoe by Barbara Cummings, was first published in 1967. It was recently reissued by Dawn, actually. It's essentially a, a kind of coming-of-age story about two sisters. It begins in the 30s when they're teenagers and then sort of goes on to the 60s when they're in their 40s. Everything bad that can happen to these girls happens. Such poverty that they get boils because the nutrition of their food is so appalling. They have to cook over candle stubs. They... They fall in love with, you know, one of them falls in love with an alcoholic. They have an alcoholic mother. They, Their other husband suffers mental health issues. You know, such bad things happen. But yet somehow it is a really funny and oddly life-affirming book because it's told in this wonderfully matter-of-fact tone. And Vicky, you know, our, our narrator heroine, she kind of gets through it all. The worst that happens, happens, and on she goes. And and I think at this time of year particularly, which is a tough time of year for a lot of people, you know, reading a book where the worst happens, happens, and yet there's such resilience in the heroine, I feel it's really inspiring. Mm. And yes, I suppose just going back to this idea of sort of naughty issues, you know, you might think, you know, it was written in the 60s, maybe it doesn't still feel relevant, there are issues in it like, you know, the mental health issues, caring for someone with mental health issues, returning to work after having a baby and what, what you do with the child and the sort of balance of career and life. Poverty, you know, has, has never been more of an issue, the cost of living crisis. I think all these issues are in the book. And while it might be quite hard to talk to, you know, essentially a stranger about how difficult it might be looking after someone with mental health issues, when it's all in the book... It's the kind of sideways in. Mm, mm. And so you have these deep conversations that lead to these amazing friendships and great conversations. <laughs> and I suppose in the way of, I mean, we were talking about, you know, as a bookseller, finding a book for somebody that changes their life. What's the criteria then for choosing a book for your group to mm, discuss? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a, a really imprecise science. <laughs> so one thing I noticed as a bookseller was that, and also as a book reviewer, there's... There's a lot to encourage people to buy new books, and I think that's great. However, I was almost slightly heartbroken by the very short shelf life of a lot of books. That, you know, unless it was a real classic, people stopped buying that book, people stopped promoting it. It sort of made its way from the table at the front of the shop to a shelf to then eventually be sort of no longer stocked. And I felt this was really unfair on everyone really because you know it's unfair on the book and it's unfair on the reader these brilliant books were just kind of getting lost they're falling through the cracks so I decided with the book club to really try and focus on these overlooked kind of hidden gems of lost classics and I know I'm not alone in doing this there are you know brilliant podcasts and publishers and all sorts of people trying to to work on the backlist I just felt like the book club would be another way of doing it. And I think in the nature of these books being overlooked, 
that often means that they tend to be written by women or black writers or they are in translation. Or sometimes I find an author who is well known for their sort of current books and I try and go back to their earlier work, their lesser known work. So I'm really trying to put out books that you might not otherwise find, but that are always really good and you know, inspire good conversations. Mm. Yeah. And what sort of people are part of your book club? Yes, so we are, I'd say we're about 80% women. We're now huge. We now have 1,200 members, which is sort of astonishing given that a decade ago, you know, there were a handful of us stepping out from the bookshop. What I love most about it is it is entirely cross-generational. We get teenagers coming and we get everything all the way up to people in their 90s. So it's a really good chance for for these friendships to form across the generations. We're a really diverse mix, all sorts of backgrounds. It's it's very cheap to come, it's five pounds. You know, so there's there's no barrier to entry really. The only requirement is that you've read the book. And we're also really international, although the majority of walkers are from London, all over London. People often come from outside London, they come from Devon, Hertfordshire, all over the place. And even international readers too, we have people come from New York, Minnesota, Canada. They really sweetly, they kind of time their trips to London to coincide with the book group. Obviously, the pandemic meant we had to rethink things a lot, but actually it became this wonderful opportunity to develop the online community. So as well as our Hampstead Heath Walks, Emily's Walking Book Club now has a Substack newsletter it has Zooms, it has live discussion threads, have monthly webcasts over on YouTube. So I've really worked on building and developing this community across all sorts of platforms, which has meant that readers in Cape Town and Tel Aviv, yeah, quite a few in America, Australia, can all feel part of this this group mm. reading this great book. 1,200 members. How do you go for a walk with 1,200 people? <laughs> I mean, it would be amazing if 1,200 people all turned up on the heat. <laughs> but because there is this quite clear requirement of having read the book for the heath, it does sort of self-select a bit. So we've never, I think the most we've had was 60 on a walk. It's normally you know, somewhere between 30 and 50. And then the other members sort of keep in touch via email or or they come on the Zooms or the threads. So it's sort of a, you know, a kind of satellite operation. There are all sorts of different ways of of connecting. Mm. I wonder about the whole sort of mental health aspect of this, because quite often if you want to have an awkward conversation with somebody, Mm. the way to do it is just by going for a walk. You don't have to look at them. Yes. Uh, And it's quite a good way to delve into conversations that you wouldn't normally have. But of course, being in nature adds to that too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think being out in nature, you know, the heath is so beautiful, especially in London, which is is so urban, you suddenly feel like you're in a in a different world, and it's almost it almost feels slightly timeless. We actually did a, a walk in memory of a walker who sadly passed away, and we held a minute's silence, and we really felt like we travelled back in time. That you could hear the church bells ringing, this total quiet on the heath. It felt like such a special moment to share with everyone so I think you know although the conversations are so great it's so unusual to have a moment of silence together Mm. yeah so I think being in nature is great Hampstead Heath itself is really inspiring and I think 
just sharing that experience with people. You know, people come back month after month after month. It's been going for a decade now, so that is a long time to have this the shared bond of all those books and all those walks together. Mm, absolutely. Tell us about the uh, electronic component, more, more about the whole sort of Zoom side of it. Oh, yeah. So this was this, like, really happy accident that when COVID hit and we could no longer meet up, I said, OK, we'll, we'll try this new thing called Zoom that, you know, walkers had suggested. And... I was quite bewildered. You know, we were all totally bewildered by this whole thing. Um, but what was amazing was that all these walkers who who hadn't come to the book group for years suddenly appeared. So they'd moved back to Washington, D.C. or Tel Aviv or where, where London's such an international place. You know, people who had been living here and coming on the walks then went away. So suddenly there were all these wonderful faces from the past and I think they then, you know, spread the word about these Zooms that really had a chance to develop internationally. So we have our Zooms on a Monday night, the Monday after the Sunday of the walk. There is no requirement to have read the book. So on the walk, if you haven't read the book, it's a bit of a nightmare for the person who you're, talk- who you're walking with and talking to because the conversations are in twos and threes. So if you've read the book, someone else hasn't. You can't really talk to them about it in the way that you would like. On a Zoom, however, it's just one conversation and it's it's open to all. You know, if you like the sound of the book, if, you're, if you've heard of the author, you're kind of intrigued, you can just tune in and listen. I don't pick on people. But it's it's a great chance to connect with with people internationally, also people who, for whatever reason, can't make the walk. You know, we have one member who's immunocompromised, so can't can't be in groups people who've you know stayed living in in the countryside or or abroad so that's a great component we get you know often about 20 odd people or so on the zoom and then we have these live discussion threads which are kind of new to you (laughs) it's kind of fun everyone sort of gets on and manically types you know answering questions about the book and we it's also a chance to share other books we've been reading that month other other films we've been watching you know building that community Mm. feeling yeah, I always choose the book club books, so I'm slightly tyrannical in that. But um, the threads are a chance for everyone else to recommend things and, and suggest their own yeah. good reads. Why do you think that book clubs are so popular? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think we're all communicating more now, aren't we? Through so, you know, we're all on social media all the time. We're used to talking about things. I mean, maybe it's a very English thing if you think historically, you know, the sort of stiff upper lip, the inability to talk about anything, certainly not emotions. We're all so much more open now and that's fantastic. And I think, you know, books do, there's always something in a book, if it's a good book, that inspires a conversation. And, you know, perhaps we're all reading and just feeling like we have to talk about it. There's something in that we want to talk about. And, you know, thankfully, we're all a bit more organised and can can bring a group together to to share that experience, to share those conversations. Mm. Now, your your walk on the 11th of December, Sunday, the 11th of December, that's your walk for, for this month, is slightly different. Yes, thank you for reminding me. It's our Christmas walk. I mean, so the book, A Touch of Mistletoe, is a bit of a misnomer. It's not actually a Christmas book. The mistletoe in it is this kind of code for well, a feeling of depression, really. But what is going to make the, the walk particularly Christmassy is everyone who is coming on the walk is going to bring along 
a book that they have read and loved and they're going to have wrapped it up and then we're going to have a massive book swap so that everyone is going to leave with a Christmas present. No one will have spent any money on it and I will bring along some spares so that people who, you know, forget or for whatever reason can't bring a book no one will go away empty-handed so it's a lovely way to exchange gifts that's a wonderful yeah. idea yeah <laughs> now what about people who just can't come to london and really want mm. to do something similar what advice would you give to them if they wanted to start their own walking book club oh i mean that would be wonderful and i have people have been in touch with me from all over the world wanting advice on how to start their own walking book clubs it does work so well so I would say, number one, drop me a line and I would love to, you know, listen to your situation and and give you some tips in person. I would say make sure you choose some good books and you're quite clear about the kind of books you want to be discussing. Choose your place where you're going to be walking. Maybe do a little walk there first to, to plan out the route. You want somewhere that is, ideally, you can do a loop and has some good places to stop on the way. And spread the word. Find out how you're going to to get the word out there. I was really lucky when I started this. I was working at Daunt Books, so I had a kind of built-in audience. Everyone who came into the shop, I would sort of press a flyer into their hands, like, please come. But even with that, the first year of its existence, very few people came. We had a few walks where it was just me and one other person or me and two other people. It took a long time to get to 1,200 members. So I'd say stick at it. You know, don't give up. Just keep on going. And it is such a lovely thing, walking and talking about books, that once someone comes, they will want to come again. Mm. It's just about keeping it going for long enough to, so it gets the momentum. I want to turn now and look at another aspect of your career, which is reviewing. Yes. Because it's something that I think a lot of people think they can do, but actually it's quite a hard <laughs> form. So, yeah. so tell us how you would approach a review. OK. Well, I actually re- approach review quite like how I approach... A walking book club book. I read the book without a pencil in my hands and as I go through, I feel this is going to upset some book lovers but I'm just going to show you now. As I go through, when I find a page where there's something interesting on it, I fold over the bottom corner. Oh, I do that too. Okay, <laughs> some people I just say, ah, you've murdered the book. Yeah. So I get to the end and then I come... I come back to the book and I've got all these little folded down pages with interesting things. And I have a blank sheet of paper or a nice notebook. And without looking at the book, I write down all the ideas that have come up in my head, just on thinking about it, the things that sort of rise to the surface. And I get a very messy page. Then I go back through the book and I stop at each page where I folded over the corner and read through that page, find the sort of point that was interesting. If it's something that illustrates something I've already thought of, I sort of write down the page number. If it's something new, I write my new point. So go through the book doing that. And I have this page that looks like the inside of my brain. Like it is so (laughs) scrambled and messy and there are all these sort of different colours and lines. And I try and order that into, you know, so if it's for the book club, it would be stop one, stop two question three like that if it's for the review it would be my kind of paragraph points I then start writing it you know making sure I back up my points with the quotes and then I get to the end and I realize I've written you know three times what's needed for the word count and I kind of ruthlessly either cut through or email the editor and beg for some extra words and then it's done 
I wonder what sense of responsibility you feel to the author, because it's always, I mean, a, a writing a horrible review might be satisfactory to some, but I think it's quite a difficult yeah, thing to do. Yeah, it's a really difficult thing to do. I, I really try not to write horrible reviews. So if it's a book that I really can't stand, I actually ask if I can just not review it. Because I feel like you're... Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky point. I think if it's a, a really big author who has some resilience and you know can be taken down a peg or two, fine. But often it's a debut novelist or someone who's written one or two other books. And there's so few pages in newspapers given to books... It's like, why, why waste the space on telling someone not to buy this book? You know, what, what's the point? Mm. I'd rather just not give them the column inches and write about a book that I do think is worth reading. So that's my way of sort of sidestepping it. If I really have to, occasionally I've been sort of really made to just write the review, I try and find an interesting point in there. I yeah. love the way that there's often a, a line that's been plucked from a review, an otherwise negative <laughs> yeah. review, which kind of says, but superlative use of whatever. Yes. <laughs> that's the only mm. positive thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So true. I, so before book selling, I actually worked in publishing as an editorial assistant, and that was often my job to pluck things out of reviews to put on the paperback jackets. And it is a skill to just sort of, and you did some, sometimes feel. You know, oh, I'm not. I'm not quite sure this is okay to sort of just put the word fantastic <laughs> when like it's sort of couched in <laughs> fantastically bad words. <laughs> but you you made a serious point there, which is that there's so little space available for mm, for books mm, mm. in in the broadsheets less these and days. Less, yeah, I mean that's a real problem. Who gets reviewed? And I know people, you know, fight tooth and claw to mm, to actually mm. make it onto those pages. It is a real problem. It's a real issue. And I, I think the... I don't think the newspapers are making those decisions lightly. I think it's informed by what readers want to read. I mean, I remember once one editor saying, you know, the sort of the awful thing about the internet was it's so trackable. So she could see that a new literary novel's review got barely any clicks, whereas an article, I think it was about a topless book club, got sort of gazillions. Mm. Um, so that's, as an editor, I think you have to respond to that. Maybe you have a responsibility to do those literary reviews, but you've also got to do the stories that are going to get read. I think on the on the positive side, <laughs> as you mentioned, there's this like, amazing growth in book clubs and broadsheet column inches are no longer the only place where books get covered. Mm. You know, there's the huge rise in book talk, which has a massive impact on book sales and and the whole culture on books. I mean, I used to work at Daunt Books. I'm still very friendly with a lot of booksellers there. They say the bookshops have been transformed. The people who come in now, they're sort of younger, they're chattier, they're really excited to find you know, these books that maybe aren't getting reviewed at all in the newspapers, but are huge on BookTok. And those sales are huge. I mean, maybe the quality of the writing isn't always on sort of booker level, but I think there's something there. And I think it's so exciting to get 
a new crowd into into the shop. It's fabulous. It's incredible. Absolutely. Emily, how can people find your book club? Thank you. Yes. So the best thing to do is to search for Emily's Walking Book Club or if you just type in emilysalkingbookclub.substack.com. You'll come straight to the Substack where you can sign up to the newsletter. You can see all our archives and get all the information about the events and the books and, and everything else. Excellent. Emily Rhodes, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Find Emily's Walking Book Club on Substack where you can sign up to its monthly newsletter and get more information. And the next walk is happening on the 11th of December. The discussion will be on Barbara Commons' A Touch of Mistletoe. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer Nora Hull. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.